the privilege of worshiping, to singing praises, lifting hands, clapping, shouting, dancing, praying before you this morning. Thank you, Spirit of God, for what you've already done in people's lives and in their hearts. And I pray right now as we open the Word of God together, that Spirit of God, you would make it be life to us again. Passages we may have looked at in the past, things we may have read, but today, Spirit of God, uncover truth for us afresh and anew. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're talking about being intentional in our lives. Uh, I've titled this sermon series, Back to the Future, and I, I know you know, whenever you think of Back to the Future, you think of that DeLorean that goes back in time, and crazy scientist, and for those of you who've seen it, who are 30 years old or whatever the movie is, uh, maybe older than that now. But in any case, we're framing it in this way. We need to get back to some of the fundamentals in order to prepare for our future. That sometimes as we go through our lives, our Christian lives, <clears throat> we know the fundamentals of the faith. We know some of the foundations, but we get lost. We, we just kind of Start cruising through life rather than being intentional about the way we live. And if God really is going to do what he wants to do in us and through us to touch the world with the good news of Jesus Christ, we need to never leave the fundamentals, never move beyond them, but grow upon them. Let the foundations remain the foundations. And one of the ones we've looked at over the last couple of weeks is that Jesus commissioned his followers to go into the world and to make disciples. To make disciples. We are speaking about what does it mean to be an intentional disciple who makes disciples. In other words, a disciple, it's, it's a word that many times sounds so spiritual, but in truth what it means is you're a follower, a learner. So we are followers or learners of Jesus Christ. And as followers of, or learners of Jesus Christ, we are to go into the world and make other followers or learners of Jesus Christ. John Wesley said this. He said, the church changes the world not by making converts, but by making disciples. And there's a big difference between just seeing someone converted into the faith and someone raised up into maturity in the faith. We are to be a disciple-making people. Here's one of the challenges that mankind has always faced and will continue to face is this. In doing even good, are we doing good our way or are we trying to do good God's way? And there's a major difference in the fruit that will be born if we... So, for instance, I've got my eye on a prize. I, I, I'm looking at something that's right. It's good. It's wholesome. It's healthy. And I say, I'm going after this. I'm going to achieve this. And so in my strength, in my might, I look at it, I focus on it, and now I'm running toward it. But I've never... Asked God, how do you want me to see this accomplished? How do you desire for this to be done? So, for instance, in church life, just as an, in, uh, an example, 
we could say, you know, it, it really would please God if we see new people come into a church. I mean, it sounds right. So there are tons of ways we can do it, right? We can build a church in a number of different ways. And by the way, I'm not taking a swing at it, somebody, some other church. I, I'm just talking about us. We can say, hey, we're going to do it like this, or we're going to do it like that, or we're going to do it this way. And I believe God works uniquely through various churches to reach out and disciple. The important thing is to say, how does God want us to do it? And we've contrasted that. I'm sorry if you weren't here last week. Uh, it was awesome. You should get the tape. The guy who spoke was good. And anyway, I, I spoke on uh, Genesis um, 11 on tower building where, where mankind gathered together and said, Let's build a great city with a tower that reaches to the skies and a monument to our greatness. The building of the Tower of Babel and all that it happened there. So there's man's way, which always ends up here. If you do things man's way, it's always about man. It's always about our greatness, our name, exalting us. Versus Jesus, when he tells Peter, he says... I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Who's building the church? Jesus is building the church. I will build my church. Not Bart's going to build the church. Not you're going to build the church. But rather, Jesus is going to build the church. So there's man's way of doing it, which is a testimony to the greatness of man, ends up in tower building, and then there's building on the rock, from a biblical standpoint, which is building the way Jesus builds. We looked last week at the tragedy of tower building, that when we build towers, it misses God's purposes, it's contagious, it's a source of pride, and it creates external unity only. We don't want to build like that. As a result of what happens at the Tower of Babel, if you remember, God confuses man so that man won't think it's all about him. This is God's first real move against humanism in my book. Uh, he's saying, look, it is not about you, and I'm not going to let you go this way because it's destructive for you. It's not about him being threatened. Uh, we sang it over and over again. He has no rival. He has no equal. It's not that God was threatened in this whole deal. It's more that he's so concerned about us that if we think we can do anything on our own, then we'll never have our hearts turn to him and understand that the only way to really come to life is through him. So he confuses languages, and man kind of goes his own way, own way. So today, I want to look at, from Acts 2, kind of in my own way, it's a reversal of the Tower of Babel, so to speak. Tower of Babel, man tries to build man's way, God confuses through languages. On the day of Pentecost is when God unites. God brings back together for his purposes to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. Let me remind you and just tell the story for those of you who don't come from a church background. Jesus was crucified on the cross. And then three days later, he rose Easter. He rose to new life. He, death could not hold him. 
So on the cross, he sacrificed his life for our sins, and he rose from the dead to secure new life for those who are his followers. Fifty days later, he, well, 40 days later, he ascends into heaven. And he tells his disciples, hey, go into an upper room and wait and pray and seek after me. And when the Holy Spirit comes, then you're going to go and be my witnesses to the world. So he tells them to wait for the Holy Spirit. So they go into the upper room, they wait, and on the day of Pentecost, in Penta 50, 50 days after Passover, Passover is when Easter occurred, there's this day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit is poured out on believers. Now, this was a, a big Jewish holiday, uh, this 50 days. The, it's the Feast of Weeks. It's seven weeks after Passover. Seven times seven is... Come on, you guys say with me. Seven times seven? Thank you. Uh, 49 plus 150, 50 days after Passover, they're having the day of Pentecost. It is a celebration of two things. One, it's a celebration of when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. So it took about 50 days for them to leave Egypt. I know I'm talking all Bible stuff here, kind of history, but just hang on, it's fun. Um, at least to me, and so anyway, they, the nation of Israel got freed from slavery back in Exodus. It took them 50 days to get to Mount Sinai where God gave them the Ten Commandments. So they're celebrating the Ten Commandments on this day, and it's, it's a festival of harvest. This is when the wheat comes in. So there, it's, it's like a dual festival of the giving of the law and the coming in of the harvest. It's one of the three really major times when the nation of Israel would, would all go to Jerusalem, when the Jewish people would go to Jerusalem and celebrate. So you had Passover and then Pentecost, uh, the 50 days, uh, the Feast of Weeks. Or, anyway, they would go and celebrate. So there are people from all over the world who are in Jerusalem, Jews from everywhere, who are in Jerusalem on this day. And on this day... In Acts 2, it says the Holy Spirit is poured out on the people who are in the upper room praying. They go out and they start to speak in tongues and our languages. And the people from all over the world who hear them hear in their own language. Now, I think you get the obvious connection here. At the Tower of Babel, God confuses. He sends words down and people can't understand each other, and so they disperse. Now the Holy Spirit is poured out, and the gift of language is given to those who are followers, and the people from all over the world now all hear and understand. You see, to me, there is God's way, which is unity, understanding, clarity. There's man's way, which is an achievement to his own, and confusion that results. It says in Acts 2, 4, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. How many were filled? All of them. It is, the Holy Spirit is not being poured out on a select few. The Holy Spirit is not just for the super spiritual. The Holy Spirit is available to all who believe. And then all of them began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. 
And the people understood. Here, let me just contrast. At Babel, God confused. On the day of Pentecost, God clarified. At Babel, people could not understand. At Pentecost, people understood. At Babel, God scattered. And at Pentecost, God gathered. Because this is the way God works. He works. He is a God of clarity. And I think what we see on the day of Pentecost is the remedy that is the temptation to be tower builders in and of ourselves. So what I want to do is just walk us through just a couple of principles that will help us accomplish what God wants us to accomplish in God's ways. Are, are, you, are you with me? So won't keep you too long. I just want to do what the first point says. I want to keep it simple. Keep it simple. Really, the message of the gospel is not that complicated. It's ununderstandable, but it's not complicated. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit is poured out on the believers who are praying in the upper room, the 120 or whatever it was in the upper room, on all of them. They go out, they start speaking in these tongues. People understand. Now, Peter gets up because the, there's some people who are saying, wow, we, this is unbelievable that I understand. And there are other people who are saying, these people are drunk. Now, this cracks me up. Um, I, I've had opportunity to be around just one or two drunk people in my life. I, I've yet to find one that's more articulate in that state than they are in their normal state. You know what I mean? I mean, that wouldn't be my first conclusion. Oh, these guys are drunk. I can't, everybody around here can understand exactly what they're saying. But you know, when the accuser comes in, that he just, he'll, he'll say anything. He'll get us to say anything. So Peter gets up, and he's going to clarify what's going on. And so he preaches a sermon that if you read it, it's five minutes, maybe, tops, five minutes. And most of that is quoting of Scripture passages. Remember, he, Peter knows his audience. These are Jews from all over the world. So Peter quotes from the book of Joel and the book of Psalms when he preaches this sermon. And then he comments on them by just talking about the life of Jesus. It is a very simple message in which he says this, the Holy Spirit, this is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit that Joel prophesied about. And it comes because of Jesus, who, by the way, you killed, but God raised to life. He's not really accusing, he's just saying, hey, you killed him, but God raised him. Now, your response should be, Repent of your sins and get baptized and follow Jesus. I mean, really, that's the crux of his message, and it's very simple. Simplicity is a characteristic of unity. You know, I think there are certain principles woven through the fabric of God's created order. The more complicated things get, the harder they are to understand. But simplicity, I believe, brings unity. At Pentecost, Peter kept it simple. He didn't deal with many of the intricate issues that divide and confuse many Christians today. 
I mean, we get so stinking complicated. I mean, I don't know if I'm with you or against you. You know what I mean? Because yeah, I don't know what we're talking about half the time when it comes to Christian stuff. Because we've dissected our faith and made it so complicated. And then we've used the complications to divide. Uh, when I was younger, before I got married, my brother and I, and I've talked about this trip on several occasions, my brother and I traveled through Europe one summer, and, you know, we're backpacking, and we're in different countries, and at one point, we're in Italy, and we jump on a bus, and by the way, for those of you who are young, there were days when you could, you had to actually travel when you didn't have everything on your phone. First of all, you didn't even have a phone. I mean, you actually had a map or a book that you're trying to follow to figure out where you're going. I, I, I know, this sounds like the dark ages, but, you know, it didn't tell me where I was, nor did it tell me which stop to get off of. You just jump on a bus, think, hoping you're on the right bus. That, first of all, that the right number was the number in the book, and you're trying to figure out which stop. So I'm talking to this bus driver, this Italian bus driver, and I'm saying something about hey, do I get on this stop or after this stop or around this stop or beyond this stop? I'm just trying to talk really fast because, first of all, Italians talk really fast. And I, I don't know Italian. I'm just speaking in English. And this driver just stares at me, never says a word. You know, you could see it in his eyes. He has no clue what I'm talking about. So I just, we'll figure it out. I goes down and sit next to my brother, and he says to me, hey, you know, I speak English, and I have no idea what you just said. <laughs> I mean, sometimes we get things so confused because we get so excited or we try to make it so complicated. It's like that in the Christian faith. If you're trying to communicate the love of Christ with someone, just keep it simple. The gospel is simple in the message that is Again, beyond understanding. Paul says in Corinthians this, But I am afraid, lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your mind should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of your devotion to Christ. Simplicity and purity of your devotion to Christ. Sometimes the more you know, it's not the better off you are. In Luke, Jesus says this. The Pharisees are asking for a sign if the kingdom of God is coming. And he says this. Once having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, I just said that, Jesus replied, the kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation, nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because where is the kingdom of God? It's within you. It's within you. God desires for us to be simply focused on loving him. We've been trying to do this this past year in our church, is try to simplify things, to simplify uh, our corporate gathering and our small group setting. You know, sometimes at church life, in case you didn't, for those of you who aren't familiar with church life, things can get, you can get so many meetings that it just gets so complicated to go to these meetings all the time. And then you dread, start to dread going to all these meetings. And then the next thing you know, you've got so many meetings that the only person who are showing up for the meetings are the people who have to show up for the meetings. 
We've found that on occasion. So we've been trying to simplify things to, to say, look, we want to focus on corporately gathering as the body of Christ and then being a part of our E3 groups, our small groups, so that it's lovely times. I, I like that ringtone. You could silence it if you'd like, but I, it was very, very attractive. Thank you. Mitch, that wasn't you today, was it, bro? <laughs> you know, by the way, simplicity doesn't mean uniformity. I mean, it doesn't, God, God wants us to be, keep our message simple, but it doesn't mean we all look exactly alike. It, it, we're not Stepford Christians. We are, uh, we, are, we are Christians that God calls us to be uniquely made, but following the gospel. We have this foundation. At the Tower of Babel, it's, there's this one interesting part where it says they made their own bricks. They made their own bricks. And this is a period where people weren't really making bricks. They used stone generally to build rather than bricks. But they're making their own bricks because they wanted to look exactly alike. Uh, look over to your left and look at this lovely wall that we have um, put up just recently or down at the front. I love stonework like this. I love it because... It takes all these different looks and things and puts them together in a, in a beautiful whole that is, to me, much more beautiful than, than every single thing looking exactly alike. When God says he's building a temple, it means he's taking you and me and our unique giftings and our unique lives, our unique personalities, and he's not saying, hey, you've got to be exactly like Bart be good for some of you, but it really is not what we're aiming for. You're not looking to be identical to me. You're to be uniquely you. The simplicity of the gospel doesn't mean uniformity, but it does help us understand that together we're a living temple for the presence of the Lord. So keep it simple. Second is focus upward. Focus upward. At Babel, the people wanted to make a name for themselves and to lift that name high to the heavens. In Acts 2, we see the name of Jesus being lifted higher and higher. Let me just list some passages for you from Acts 2. I think they're in your sermon notes as well. But in Acts 2.21, Peter says, And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In Acts 2. 232 God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of the fact Acts 236 therefore let all Israel be assured of this God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ and Acts 237 when the people heard this they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and other apostles brother what shall we do Peter replied Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, I listed all those passages for this reason. Peter had one goal in mind, point people to Jesus. Lift the name of Jesus higher. Jesus had told his followers that 
when the Son of Man is lifted up, and he was referring to the cross, just as Moses lifted the, the serpent up in the wilderness, whole other Bible story, and the people looked at it and were saved, as the Son of Man, meaning himself, is lifted up, and people look to me, they're going to they're gonna be saved. So Peter is l lifting the name of Jesus higher. He's, he's getting people to focus upward. <clears throat> now, when we think about this, would it not be tempting on the day of Pentecost where suddenly you've been given the gift where everybody can understand no matter what their language is to say, We're the 120 special ones. Look what God did, did in us. We are super spiritual. And to, and to take the glory that God has poured out and claim it for yourself, to lift your name up. I mean, I think a prophet could have been had on this day if they had not done what they were supposed to do. In other words, we are so tempted to take the glory for ourselves when God does spectacular things, as if we had anything to do with it. You know, does a, does a pipe really receive the glory when water flows through it? Is it about the pipe or the water? Well, the pipe is just a conduit for the water to flow through. I mean, God is God's looking for pipes. I mean, he's looking for conduits for his power to flow through. But to do it, we have to keep focusing people upward. A compass is a really simple instrument. I mean, it just has an arrow that points in one direction, north. It just points there all the time. The compass of our heart should be Jesus, pointing people to Jesus. I, I watched a movie about a week and a half ago called Arrival. Um, it's about aliens coming to Earth kind of thing. I, I like that sort of thing. Don't judge me. But I, I, I liked it. And, but they, they, bring this, they bring this linguist in to go speak to the aliens. I, you know, the more I talk about it, the stupider it sounds. But... Um, <laughs> You had to be there <laughs> to really enjoy the movie. So they bring this linguist in to, to try and figure out what these aliens are doing. And, and they basically are saying to her, we want to know, ask them, why are you here? What is your purpose? Is it for good or is it for evil? I mean, it's her whole job to try and figure out how to communicate with these aliens. It made me think, there's a lot of thought-provoking parts of this crazy movie, but it made me think, why are we here? In other words, what am I supposed to be doing? It made me take a step back for, for me to just kind of say, what if, if someone were to say to me, Bart, why are you here? What are you doing on earth? Then to say, I want to point people to Jesus. You know, honestly, too many times I, I reach a place where I'm here to, to enjoy life. 
I'm here to like movies or read books or make money or make a name for myself. Listen, people, we got to be focusing people on the love of Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis said, every Christian would agree that a man's spiritual health is exactly proportional to his love for God. Focus people upward. Focus on, on God. Confusion is eliminated when Jesus is invited into our hearts. Focus on him. Third point is this, direct it outward. Directed outward. Sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with the world is the theme of the book of Acts. Being witnesses to the world. Acts 1.8, again, another way that where Jesus is reframing the Great Commission is this. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Why was the Holy Spirit poured out on the church? So we could be witnesses. Too often, we believe the primary purpose of the Holy Spirit is poured out on us so we can, what? We can just have a party. So the church can enjoy being together. It's one of the side benefits, but it's not the primary purpose. The primary purpose of the Holy Spirit being poured out was so that we would testify of the greatness of God. And if you look at the book of Acts, just read through the whole book. Go home today. You got nothing else, unless you're going to a shower at 2 o'clock for Sarah. Um, between now and then or after then, ladies, men, you got all day. Um, read the book of Acts. Every time a miracle occurs, what happens? Jesus is preached. Jesus is preached. Guy gets healed in the temple, the cripple in, in uh, Acts 3. What happens? Preaching Jesus. Every time something miraculous happens. Why? Because those are signs and wonders. And what does a sign do? It points. I mean, nobody stays at the sign. Right? If you see, hello, if you see a sign on the road, you don't just say, oh, man, I love this sign. I think I'll stay right here. This one-way arrow totally moves me, and I'm going to just stay right here, and I'm going to just love this sign. No, the sign is pointing you towards something. It's pointing you toward Christ. It's pointing you toward Him. That's what signs and wonders, what the pouring out of the Holy Spirit is all about. Healings, prophecies for building up of the body of Christ. We're stronger so that as we're stronger, we're like a, that jewel held up to the light of God so that people see the glory of Christ. It's all about Him. One way or the other, it's about Him. People, get you to know it, the landscape of American Christianity is rapidly changing. Just give you a couple. People who identify themselves as Christians, between 2007, when it was 78%, and 2014 in America, these are people who say they're Christians. It dropped by 8%. And this is three years ago, and it's probably dropped at least that much and more since then. These are the latest statistics, uh, according to Pew Research Center. Um, 
About one in five Christians, those who identify themselves as Christian, now participate in their faith service online. So, another one in five participate with either television or radio. So, of the people who say they're Christians, two out of five don't even go to church. I mean, a physical church. They're either viewing it online or viewing it on television or radio. And by the way, the online is growing really quickly. And the television or radio is because you have more choices online. You, you can watch who you want to. Um, my dad, for instance. Now, my dad's 84, so it's a little harder for him to get to church. But he, he goes to church online now. He keeps asking me, hey, when are you going to get online? And I'm like, I don't know. Ask Larry. He knows. I don't know when we're going to get online, but because it's harder for him to get out so he can view it online. But there are others who just, it's, it's about convenience. About 54% of Americans um, qualify as churched, meaning they've been to church sometime in the last six months. So 54% of Americans can be identified as churched. And by the way, just showing up at church don't make you a Christian. You know that, right? Uh, just showing up here on Sunday morning or even viewing online or on television. But 54% are churched. That means, that means that 143 million Americans are unchurched. I, it took me a while to do the math uh, it, it, with a population of America as it is today. If 143 Americans are unchurched, that means the unchurched population of America would be qualified as the ninth most populous country in the world. There are more unchurched Americans than there are citizens of Russia since it broke up. I mean, that's a lot of people, people. You know, this whole idea of America as a Christian nation we are in a post-Christian society. Of the unchurched, a quarter to a half cannot name a church within a 15-minute drive of their home. A third does not even know a person who attends church. Few know what the major denominations are, are what they stand for, how they differ from one another, Major Christian leaders are unknown to them. And only one out of four have ever been invited to a church. Yet, most say that if they were invited, they'd go. As a matter of fact, nine out of ten of the unchurched who don't go to church say, if someone asked me to go, I'd go with them. What, what am I saying here? I'm saying, listen... We may be thinking everybody already knows. Everybody doesn't already know about Jesus. You know, I, I understand Birmingham is considered the second most biblically literate city in all of the United States. I mean, you, you are in the heart of the Bible Belt. And yet, is it really making a difference in the way our city works? All this Bible literacy? I believe God has called us to be what? A disciple-making church. A disciple-making people. And to do that, we've got to focus people 
upward and then turn the message of Christ outward to the world around us. To look for opportunities to share the good news of Jesus Christ. To invite people to come and to worship together. This past Wednesday at the family meeting, I shared this passage from Corinthians. Again, as we're reading through the Bible, this was in our Bible reading this past week. 1 Corinthians 9, Paul has already stated, for those of you who are Wednesday night, I'm not going to do the whole Wednesday night talk again, but a part of it I am. Um, Paul, in this passage, he's saying, look, I'll do anything for the gospel. Paul is a pragmatist. Paul's saying, hey, to the Jew, I'll be a Jew. To the Greek, I'll be a Greek. Whatever it takes to share the gospel, because it's not about me. It's not about what I like. Hello, church, listen to this. He's saying, it's not about what I like. It's about how can I get the gospel there, the good news. And he says, I do everything to spread the good news and share in its blessings. Don't you realize that in a race, everyone runs, but only one person gets the prize? So run to win. Now, by the way, Paul is not saying we're in a competition against other churches or other Christians. He's saying, look, if you're going to run, run the race well. Run with the end in mind. Run the race. He says all athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away, but we do it for an eternal prize. So I run. This is the passage I want you to just grasp onto. I run with purpose in every step. I'm not just shadow boxing. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I might myself be disqualified. Paul is saying, look, you belong to Jesus. As a disciple, that's a follower of Jesus, a learner, you belong to him. And when you know who you belong to, then you, you're willing to do whatever he's asking you to do. I can't say I belong to him and say I'm unwilling. Hello? You with me so far? I, I belong to him, now I'm willing. As a matter of fact, I'm, I'm free to do. I'm, I, I'm either a slave to sin or a slave to Jesus. Either way, I'm, I'm in slavery. So when the Spirit of the Lord is there is freedom, it means I'm no longer free I don't have to sin anymore, but instead, I get to do what Jesus calls me to do. And I'm willing to do. There's a freedom that comes, and when it happens, we need to stay engaged with him. I'm going to bring this full circle and then close. One of the things I discovered about my life as I get older, I know, I don't look that old, but trust me, I'm feeling it. Uh, in many ways. But as I get older, you start to cruise a little bit. You know, you think, ah, I've been there, done it. I don't have, when I was younger, it seemed like everything I did, I did with a intentionality. You know, I felt like I was doing that. But now I'm a little tireder. I don't have quite as much energy as I once did. And, and, and I've done a lot of studying, reading. I've had life experiences. So now when something happens to me, if I'm not careful, I just go through my Rolodex. Oh, for the, some of you are way too young for that. I go back through my files, and I search for, I search for, hey, 
here's this, this matches this, I'll pull up this file, I'll just do what I did. It's easier. Now, experience can work like that, but one of the bad things about it is you never have to ask God about it anymore. And you just start to cruise. Paul is saying, don't, 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 don't live like that. Make every step have a purpose. A couple of weeks ago, I think it was three weeks ago, I ran the Mercedes half marathon, which I, you know, I've, I've done it every year and I'm getting slower every year, but I'm still finishing and finishing in time to get to church. But enough about me. Um, but when you run a race, you don't just go out there and, and run. I mean, there's a course you're following. And if you get off course, you don't finish the race. I have a good friend who was doing a triathlon, and uh, he got lost on the bike. You know, some, I, for some reason, he made a wrong turn. Now, it's really hard to do the way races are these days to make a wrong turn, but you get kind of delirious after a while when you're doing these races. You know, you've done a swim, now you're like 50 miles into a bike, and somehow your mind is, is cruising rather than attentioning. And the next thing you know, <laughs> you make a wrong turn. He, he rode 10 to 20 miles more than he was supposed to before he finally figured out, wow, I'm out here riding by myself and found his way back on course. Too many of us, when we get to that stage where we're, there's no intentionality, we're just out running the streets. We're not running a race. And Paul says, look, you need to stay engaged. I said this Wednesday night, and, and it bears repeating. <clears throat> I, I am weary. I am weary as a pastor watching kids raised in this church leave the faith. I'm weary of seeing marriages disintegrate. I'm weary of watching friends slip off into the darkness. It breaks my heart. It not only breaks my heart, it makes me at times want to give up and to say, this is not worth it. This is... This is, God, this is too hard to keep doing it, doing this. To see my heart broken over and over again. I believe that the way to overcome this is by living life with every step being in purpose. To keep our eyes fixed on him, to build the way he builds, to keep it simple, to focus upward, to, to keep the message of the gospel going outward. Now, there, I, I guess there will always be people slipping off into the darkness because it doesn't, I can't control what everyone's doing and everyone's thinking. But I believe if we as a church keep our, our message on point, Keep focusing on Christ. Keep focusing on the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. To keep grace at the forefront of who we are, then people will be less likely to go astray. And I want to encourage you to keep stepping, taking a step with purpose. Because, again, 
my contention is people drift toward the darkness. They don't intentionally run toward the darkness. Hello? Are you with me? That when they lose their purpose, they just start to drift. And it's when they drift that they go into. Like I said, Wednesday night, for those who were here, I, I, I haven't met one person yet who said, who woke up in the morning and said, hey, you know what, today I'm going to ruin my life. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to steal this money. I'm going to have this affair. I'm going to get as drunk. I'm going to go buy drugs from an undercover cop. I'm going to ruin my life today. Why, how does it happen? They drift there. And then the next thing you know, there's less light, less light, less light. Till they're in the darkness. Now some come back. Praise God. But some don't. How do we prevent from that? We live lives of intentionality. We make every step count. Run with a purpose. And it's not tower building. It's building by God's grace, by the power of the Spirit that's, that helps us stay engaged. See, tower building, again, it misses God's purposes. It's contagious. You'll get caught up in it before you even know it. It becomes a source of pride to you. And it results where there's this unity that's external. It's, a, it's around a purpose. It's not around a person. The remedy that the church can do to, to help us is keep it simple, keep it up, upward focused, and move the message outward. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. See, I believe we don't have to drift into the darkness. That hell will not overcome the church of Jesus Christ when he builds his way in us and through us. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you this morning. We pray, God, that your purposes would be accomplished in our lives. Lord, we thank you for the privilege that we have of building according to your plans and your ways. And Lord, I pray that you would help us prevent from living lives that are not intentional, living lives of being unfocused. I pray that, Spirit of God, right now you'd move on the lives of of people here, that there, if there are people here today who are, who are drifting, that Spirit of God, you would just shine the light of Christ into their life, draw them back to the light. I pray that you expose sin in our lives. I pray that you would minister life and grace to us today. Lord, I, I want to be an intentional disciple. I want to be following after you, and I want to be leading others to follow after you. So God, give me wisdom. Give me grace. Thank you for your presence that dwells me and empowers me. Lord, we thank you today for who you are and what you're doing. And we bless you, Lord.